Hello, and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Chloe Stages, Associate Investment Director from Tilney's London office. And I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy prices, and the easing of COVID restrictions. We are recording our podcast from our homes today on Tuesday, the 1st of March, 2022. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. In the early hours of the 24th of February 2022, the Russian president ordered an invasion of Ukraine. This carries huge risks for the world's economy, resulting in a high volatility of equities. How is this impacting current markets and is it causing negative impact on sentiment? Well, I think clearly it's a major humanitarian and and geopolitical crisis. Of course, our our thoughts are very much with, with all of those affected. When it comes to markets and investing, it is always important to try and separate these two. And importantly, remember that not all geopolitical events turn into major market events. Of course, there is the potential, and we can all talk about some of the, some of the scenarios that it could lead to, to uh, significant impacts, particularly economically. But it's important to put those in context, look at the probabilities uh, and, and assess what that actually means. And I think, you know, particularly at the moment, we, we tend to see your highlighted volatility quite rightly. It's important to remember that volatility is very often two ways uh, in these sort of environments. And that's shocks on the downside, but also very rapid rallies in the subs- in the first couple of days of the conflict. That's very much what we've seen in markets on the, the Thursday where when uh, the conflict really Um, broke out. We saw very sharp falls in markets, but even in the US, that was very quickly reversed just within the day. Uh, And we saw US markets actually end end up on the day. Some of that is uh, in anticipation of potential uh, central bank action or, or, or what other sort of interventions. So it is worth highlighting when we talk about volatility, we don't just mean markets falling. A lot of investors as well are taking opportunities to perhaps top up their cash on the sidelines. Those looking for a dip, not, they don't necessarily um, pay too too much attention what that what will cause that dip. They're just looking for markets to fall, and that's why we're seeing quite a lot of volatility. So actually, equity markets uh, are a little lighter, but generally they they've uh, moved sideways with a lot of volatility. The areas that have have benefited from an investment point of view unsurprisingly, are the perceived safe havens, in particular gold. A lot of people have been seeking that as, as a potential store of wealth. And also government bonds have, have risen uh, a little bit, having been selling off steadily throughout the year. Um, that's been a little less, uh, the movements in government bonds have been a little less, maybe the one might have expected. Um, but overall, you need to remember there's not just the first few days of the actual conflict. This has been bubbling up sort of throughout February. So a lot is already into the price even before uh, the, the, those events of Thursday. 
With energy prices prominent in headlines over the past few weeks and Russia being responsible for around 11% of global oil exports, will the Russian and Ukraine war intentions lead to rupturing supply chains and further price hikes for energy supplies globally? Well, I think naturally the instinctive reaction is of course, but the reality is always it's not quite so straightforward. Um, as you highlight, Russia is, is a key energy exporter. So that's very much in focus as, as one looks at the economic impact. And there is every potential that that supply does get disrupted. It is worth highlighting, though, you know, the Russian economy is very heavily reliant on those energy exports. It's a key source of revenue into their economy. Also, many customers are reliant on those energy imports and the importance of particularly Russian gas to Europe is very well known. So at least initially, there's it's not in either side's interest to materially cut those supplies. And I think it's very interesting as all the other sanctions have been applied. It has been, uh, and energy is yet to be either directly sanctioned or indeed the direct financing heavily sanctioned uh, and on the Russian side, there's been no move yet to, to restrict those. So actually, that energy supply line is, is still very much open. The question remains open as to whether it becomes a, a source of retaliation from the Russian side uh, in response to other sanctions, or indeed, whether or not Western uh, economies do choose to, to sanction those. Uh, and as we've seen, Canada has announced it's no longer going to accept imports of, of, of Russian energy. So I think there's a big question over over sort of the willingness of of both sides to endure that kind of, of hardship. It's a question that Western countries have to have to ask: how much economic uh, potential pain would, would they be willing to to, to accept? Because it's important to remember sanctions work work both ways. It would be applying additional sanctions on Russia, um, but it does come at a cost to some of the uh, to, to some of those on this side uh, of the fence. And it's also worth highlighting energy prices, of course, are, are pushing higher. We saw energy hit $100 uh, a barrel, so that's Brent crude that we look at, from 70 at the start of, of December. It is worth highlighting a lot of these movements aren't all just on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, though we've talked before about some of the reopening trades. Um, and a lot of this movement is at the short end. So it tends to be the oil price moves high, and what gets reported is oil for immediate delivery because that's where supply chains get disrupted at the short end. But you can look along the futures curve and see how much oil is in the future. And with that in mind, you know, if you look at the price of oil, say, for two years out, we look at the March 2024, it has moved higher, but that price has moved from $63 uh, six months ago. Now it's at 78 So it is higher, but it's not that spiking element that we've seen at the short end. We also need to remember there are other things that the global participants can do to try and manage any potential oil price shock. There are other countries, particularly those in the Middle East, that can increase supply to account for any reduction from areas such as Russia. And many countries, particularly the US, have quite large strategic oil reserves. And historically, these reserves have, reserves have been deployed when there have been these sort of geopolitical conflicts. It can't replace on a sustained basis that oil supply, but it can try and, uh, and mitigate those in the short term. So there are reasons to think that the oil price might move higher and that could move into, into energy prices. But it's not quite that that straightforward. There are incentives on both sides to consider, and there are other things that, that participants globally can do just to try and mitigate 
those shocks, certainly on a medium term basis. Thanks, Ben. And you touched upon this in the first question, but at times of geopolitical crises, we tend to see safe haven assets rise in terms of gold prices and commodities like gas and oil. What does this mean for the pressure on global inflation? So I think there we need to look at Commodities have a direct impact on inflation. If you're uh, if rising commodity prices as direct inputs into the, the economy tend to push inflation higher. In in the sense of safe haven, perceived safe havens, in particular gold, they tend to be more reactionary. So they tend not to drive inflation itself, but they often get priced off it. We think that gold, uh, for example, has a high correlation with real yields. So if inflation starts picking up. Um, that pushes real yields down. So uh, gold can benefit off off the back of that. Um, In terms of what it means, we need to remember there's multiple drivers of inflation. Some are internal, particular wage spirals, higher wages, uh, more buoyant consumers bidding up the price for existing goods. Some are external, and it comes back like you highlighted the previous point, some of those external costs, particularly energy, particularly the likes of oil, um, can have uh, are external inputs in, into the, 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 those points of inflation. Um, but there are, again, several things to remember. Now, we're used to being an environment, as we have been for most of the last decade, where uh, inflation has been relatively low. So any spike of the oil price over that period would have had a, a much higher impact on inflation. But as we look now, inflation is already running at quite a high rate. And that means any impact directly from oil and gas is relatively, is that much less. And indeed, the oil intensity, that is the the, uh, the reliance of the oil price in terms of, of economic growth and GDP. It's around half what it was back in the 70s, the last time we had real problems in terms of uh, oil price shocks. So that intensity is half. And in fact, uh, if, because inflation has been running high already, and inflation is a run rate, so you know it's not just the change in the price, it's the year-on-year change in price. It has some quite uh, unusual impacts as we look at it today. So in terms of that run rate, just to give you a few numbers, even taking the direct impact of oil, which as we said, is that much lower. If we look, say, to the end of January this year, so January 2022, compared to a year earlier, the oil price has gone from about $52 a barrel to $88 a barrel, so 69% increase. And because it's the year-on-year increase the one is looking at, um, what it means is, is that percent increase, that contribution is already pretty high. And as we said, oil, the initial phases of this conflict, pushed above $100. But because of this base effect, if oil stays at $100 a barrel, it actually becomes disinflationary through the summer uh, through the summer of this year. We look at Q1 to Q3 that really covers the summer period. And that's because this high contribution we've had over the last couple of years, you need to maintain that high year-on-year increase uh, in order for inflation to remain high. So if it just stays at 100, actually the effect on inflation starts diminishing um, because of all the other aspects that have been going on. In fact, in order to maintain the current high level of inflation, oil would need to go up to $130 a barrel. And that's just to keep inflation at the current high levels that we've seen. So the direct impact is perhaps less than one might initially assume, and that's because we're already in quite a inflationary environment and because oil has already moved quite a long way. So I'm less concerned about the direct impact on global inflation. The related point is perhaps the indirect impact, uh, and that's that because 
often high oil prices can be seen as a drag on broader growth because people have to spend more money putting up their cars. And it, it, many people consider it to, to act a little like an additional tax burden. Then that can have a secondary effect. That's what I'd be more concerned about. The direct impact is actually less than people may think, particularly given the other factors driving inflation at the moment. With the removal of accommodative monetary policy, the market is priced in an interest rate rise for the next month. If there is further inflation and the threat of a global war pondering, what is the likelihood of us seeing further rises to the Bank of England's base rate? I, th- I think everything we're seeing at the moment, and our view happens to coincide with what's being implied currently in the markets and what we've talked about before. And that is this idea that the, the, the Bernanke put or the Greenspan put, the idea we've talked about that over the last decade, any time there's been a wobble, central banks have, have, have ridden to the rescue with looser monetary policy. I think that, that Bernanke put is now over. And we've talked about that before. Because inflation is already running at quite a high level, um, central banks effectively are much more limited in what they can do. Now, some of the, the short-term impacts of, of the conflict may mean that, that central banks become a little bit, bit less hawkish in their rhetoric, and maybe they stop talking about hiking as aggressively as some people have thought about. But I think there's very little I see at the moment. Of course, events may change, but on the current outlook, central banks still look like they're going to hike interest rates, maybe not quite as aggressively uh, as they were doing before. If you look over the last six months, last year, they were talking about a, a sort of gradual hiking. At the start of the year, they became a little bit more uh, aggressive in, in terms of those those hiking points. But now, I think they're still likely to, to hike, but perhaps won't be uh, quite so aggressive. They're still looking at the market pricing now. Uh, the market is implying, certainly in the UK, that we'll still have four consecutive hikes starting uh, from this month. That would take us actually to one and a half percent on UK base rates by the summer. And there's very little indication that the central banks are, are significantly moved on that position. Like we said earlier, inflation is being driven higher for, for some other reasons as well. The direct impact on the current of uh, the current conflict on the economy is not expected to have a significant uh, effect uh, in the medium term. So central banks are looking through a lot of this and still intent on that hiking cycle. I think it's a similar story in the US. The one change in the US, a lot of people have been talking uh, about a potential double hike from the Fed in March. This idea that the Fed might try and get ahead of, uh, of inflation by increasing interest rates by half a percent, which is double the, no- the normal sort of quarter, quarter point. That's now much less likely. And that reflects more this mood that maybe central central banks will become a little bit less aggressive in their hiking, but it's still a hiking cycle that, that looks like the base case, and that would still be my expectation. Okay, that's a really interesting point. How has our internal asset allocation changed to take into consideration all these factors? Well, if, if we look back at history, uh, the unfortunate reality is that whilst these, these conflicts have humanitarian impact, uh, their impact on investment strategies tends to be a lot more muted. And historically, it hasn't um, been beneficial to change investment strategy in light of these uh, such geopolitical conflicts. So we're looking through that at the moment. Obviously, we consider a, a broad-based range of outcomes, but our sort of general probability-weighted outlook hasn't changed significantly, maybe make, in fact making central banks a little less, less hawkish, creates a little bit of a tailwind 
for markets. I think that's what's been driving some of some of the intraday rebounds we've seen recently. But against that, there are still some of those storm clouds on the horizon as uh, loose monetary policy and fiscal sports are withdrawn. So we don't really change our stance on that that risk outlook. Valuations are broadly becoming a little bit more more supportive. One thing we have done recently that isn't directly related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but it has looked influenced some of the ty- timing, is just on our tips. So our US Treasury inflation protected securities, that's a position we, we put on sort of a year and a half, almost two years ago. And that was on the, the grounds that through so late 2020 and through 2021, we expected that central banks would keep interest rates low and they'd effectively sit on their hands in terms of monetary policy and then inflation expectations would pick up. And that's exactly what we saw through 2021. It's been a very positive trade for us. But I think that investment thesis has now changed. Inflation expectations and inflation looks like it's going to peak over the next few months. The exact timing of that is very hard to tell, particularly with this conflict. But I think we're likely to see inflation expectations peak and start to come down, not to the very low levels we've seen historically, but maybe they'll moderate in an area just only a little bit above target expectations. So as we see inflation expectations likely to moderate and central banks are increasing their base rates, I think it's time to, to take profit on that on that tips trade. And that's something that we started um, sort of uh, a month or so ago. Um, some of the events in the Russia-Ukraine conflict in terms of that slightly less hawkishness from central banks and perhaps a short-term just propagation of, of, of exactly when inflation peaks has sort of uh, does, does tie in with, with that trade. But it's something we're thinking about more broadly anyway. Um, so that's something that we, we have started. Uh, but that's really the main impact on, on our investment strategy. We try not to be exposed to any one binary event. We try and have diversified portfolios so that we, we, we can um, deal with, with a variety of different scenarios in our investment strategy. Brilliant. And finally, ending on more optimistic news, on Thursday last week, the Prime Minister announced the lifting of most remaining COVID-19 restrictions in England. Will this prove positive for the future of the UK's economy? I, I think the anticipation of this has certainly helped uh, the UK market and economy uh, over the last few months. Also, the rising of interest rates has been beneficial. Um, I think in terms of the economy, we may well see a pickup if we look elsewhere in the world where this has happened, particularly in the US. They reopened much more, uh, much earlier than we did, uh, and I think we can look to them and say, look, this is the sort of positive impact that you can see in terms of uh, retail sales, consumer activity, and that's reflective of the broader economy. So I think it's likely to be positive, and we might see that gr- that that growth wave move around the world. We have been looking at Europe. Europe does have a few other problems uh, brewing as well. But hopefully this will be positive for the economy and some of that will lead to a little bit of a catch up. Uh, We see the UK has been left behind slightly um, compared to the rest of the world. And I think that may well presage a little bit of a catch up. It is important to remember, of course, that the UK economy is not the UK market. Uh, If we look at large cap UK companies, uh, they, they tend to have very international uh, revenue streams, as a rule of thumb, sort of two thirds, three quarters of revenue for the largest UK companies comes from overseas, and there they're, they're tied much more into the global uh, economic recovery. But large cap UK does have a lot of oil and gas, uh, which obviously has been benefiting from the, the, the sustained rise 
in prices. We also have a lot of financials and they benefit from uh, the interest rate hiking cycle. So there are reasons to be positive on the UK market. I also think there are reasons to be positive on the UK economy as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben, for your insightful comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.